Welcome to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. Today we have a new book that's been out less than a week. Aminata Forna, an award-winning Sierra Leonean British writer, has just published the novel Happiness, out with Bloomsbury Publishers. It's thoughtful, intense, and a definite page-turner, but I'll let Ms. Forna tell you what her book's all about. Happiness is actually the hardest book I've ever had to describe that I've written myself, but simply put, it is the story of a Ghanaian psychiatrist whose name is Attila, who comes to London on official business. He's there to give a keynote speech. Um, London is a place he knows and enjoys. On this particular visit, however, he has a series of encounters which bring him into contact with a different part of London, uh, a London that most people don't see. And he also encounters a woman Uh, an old love and a new love. This really isn't a typical novel because there's so many twists and turns and the psychology of trauma and war and love are interesting themes for a book that's actually called Happiness. (laughs) Well... (laughs) I don't know what is, an, what is a typical novel anymore. I mean, the novel's gone through so many shapes and forms. And I mean, if you think it's, if it's not a typical 19th century novel, but on the other hand, you know, somebody said to me the other day, it's extremely Dickensian. Um, you know, in, in, in Dickens, often set in London and often set in parts of London one doesn't see, but, you know, with the same set of characters who encounter each other over and over again in different ways um, and suffer different fates and, you know, are connected through, through other characters in the book. I didn't set out to make it Dickensian, but, you know, in the, that is the way at least one person's described it. Um, in terms of the themes, trauma and civil conflict, and the apparent dissonance with the name, well, the dissonance with the title of the book, uh, Happiness. The happiness that we're talking about in happiness is not glee or, or, or joy. It's actually a different kind of happiness. And it's the happiness that Attila has discovered that many people find who have faced adversity. You know, for me, the greater part of reading a book and the greater part of writing a book is really the thinking process. You know, thinking is really the greater part of reading for me. I I read very slowly and I spend my time contemplating what it is that the author wants me to think about. And what I wanted people to think about with this book is whether adversity, the kind of adversity that Attila, who is an expert in trauma, has seen all over the world, um, does that adversity necessarily cause uh, damage? And are people who don't experience any kind of adversity in their life essentially any happier than anybody else? He's one of the main characters, uh, Dr. Attila Asari, and he's a, you describe him as a very large Ghanaian psychiatrist uh, who has quite a dramatic career of running to war zones and dealing with hostages, uh, among other things. But on the other hand, he's seemingly a very quiet person. He's sure, but not imposing. And he really drives the book um, because there are many threads to it, but, uh, but he is the focal point. One of my favorite lines is is when he's in London and he's asked whether he was named after Attila the Hun and his response is something like, well, many women are named after Victoria, which <laughs> kind of shows his, his personality. Um, did you model him off of someone or, or was he a composite of, of, of people in your life? Well, I based him on a generation with which I'm very familiar. And that is the generation of 
Africans from all across sub-Saharan Africa who would now be in their 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, and they were typically educated in missionary schools, won scholarships or went overseas, but went principally to Britain to study. And, you know, they, they, they were very bright. They knew they were bright. They came from upper class, upper middle class and ruling families in the African countries that they came from. So they had a great deal of confidence that derived from that as well. Uh, and, you know, I've known people like that all my life. <laughs> That's my father's generation. They were called the Renaissance generation. Wallace Yinka, another. Ngugi Wathiongo, another. Wally Schoenke called it the Renaissance generation. They came of age at the same time as their countries, and they always saw it as their job to guide their countries. They saw themselves as being fully involved in what the world was to become after empire. So the generation I know very well, I didn't sort of absolutely consciously model him on them, but I know that generation very well. And I am fascinated by their impact on the world, which I think has been considerable. And then there's the generation who come after them, of course this isn't part of happiness, of whom the greatest, the best known example is Barack Obama. Well, speaking of Americans, um, the the contrasting character who's also very important in happiness is is Jean, who's an American animal scientist who's in London researching foxes in an urban environment. The thing that's so interesting about her is she almost personifies the animals she's she's tracking, which she does mainly at night. But you really get this in the way she interacts with people. She immediately names the animal she tracks when she calls affectionately Light Bright. But it takes her a while to actually ask people, their own names, even after having a conversation with them. It's, a, it's quite a contrast to Attila. Well, she's, she's not a people person, Jean. <laughs> <laughs> I think one could fairly say that. She's not a people person. I mean, she's not, you know, in any way defective or hostile, but she certainly prefers her own company. She prefers to be out rather than in this is the first time she's lived in a big city, um, and she finds some of it challenging. She's far more used to being in a totally rural uh, North American landscape. Um, and she fundamentally understands animals and what they are, and she finds humans quite frustrating. The quixotic nature, the contradictory nature of humans, quite frustrating. And I think that Jean... You know, if she was here with us now, <laughs> would probably say, you know, for, for an animal possessed of so much intelligence, humans are probably the most frustrating in our refusal to apply it. Having them two together shows a lot of the nature versus human episodes in, in, in terms of how nature and humanity come together. And Attila's view on how suffering doesn't necessarily produce damage, which is one of the points that you make in your novel, can also be applied to the nature motifs in the book, which she brings out in in, in that part of the book, which is an yes. interesting... Mm. Um, the, the, the animals that are sort of most present in Western cities are foxes and in, Amer in North America, coyote. Jean starts off actually studying coyote, and, and that is the reason she's in Britain. She understands canids, um, and she's bringing that knowledge to her research project in London. I, mean, I live in America now, and I've lived in America on and off various times, and, and the urban animal and human conflict or coexistence, depending on, on your take or depending on what, what 
particular sequence of events is taking place is much greater than it is here. They live in greater proximity to the animals, the humans do, and the animals do, <laughs> and um, the animals are much bigger. You know, they are bears, and they are coyote, and they are deer, um, and sometimes moose. So America sort of leads on this, which is the reason that um, Gene is in the country. But what has happened both with foxes and with coyote, and which Gene knows, is that they are winning, right? That attempts to eradicate coyote have entirely failed. And unlike wolves, which were completely decimated, attempts to eradicate foxes have completely failed. Not only do the animals resist it, adversity actually makes them stronger. They get stronger through adversity, not weaker through adversity. So Gene knows that anyone who takes a combative view to, to urban animals is wasting their time. But it is that parallel that you point to is there and to me very revealing. You know, I was researching urban wildlife when I found this out and that's why it became such a strong part of the book. I mean, I was researching urban wildlife out of sheer interest. And, and when I saw that parallel between the things I was thinking about with trauma and resilience, and that there it was mirrored in wildlife, I found that fascinating and felt that it had to be a part of the story. Oh, yeah. And it's, and it's such a uniting part of the story in, in many ways, which we won't reveal. But <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, we've, we've talked about the two main characters, but the secondary characters in the book are also just as rich. They're not in the book as much, but um, and they come from all parts of Africa uh, who live in London. Um, but there's also, you know, Jean's family in in the U.S. Mm. I mean, you know, just a, just a question on, on craft. I mean, how do you bring all the, of these people together with such varied backgrounds? No, I, did, I mean, I worked on it for a good length of time, but it didn't take me an unusual amount of time compared to any other book. Do you know, this is a question I can't answer because I think it simply comes naturally. First of all, I do give all my characters a background. I mean, some writers just begin with the person in the situation and take it from there, and they tell you very little about the person's antecedents. To me, antecedents are very enormously important, and all my characters have uh, you know, I know what their history is, even if I don't always use it in the book, I know what their history is. But in terms of the disparate nature of where they come from, uh, somebody said to me recently that what she enjoyed about reading my novels is, she said, there is no other. Do you see what I mean? There, there mm -hmm. nobody is the other. That comes out of my life, you see. I've grown up, you know, my parents came from different countries. Every one of my siblings is married to somebody from, of a different nationality, I think. I mean, I'm married to um, an Englishman. I'm Scottish and Sierra Leonean. My elder brother is married to a Danish girl, was previously married to somebody from Iran. My sister's married to a Jamaican-British man. My youngest brother is married to a Chinese girl and lives in Hong Kong, speaks perfect Mandarin. My, you know, it reflects my family, and I don't... I don't find people to be very different anywhere you are in the world, right? I think that people's experiences, their environment, their cultural or religious heritage, all these things will shape their patterns of thinking and their ways of being. But the essence of the person is, you know, is exactly the same wherever you go in the world. You find the same kinds of people. So it's only really a matter of 
of, of trying to think the way they might think. Jean doesn't grow up in a city, she grows up in a rural area. Uh, she has a different exposure and understanding to wildlife, uh, and she has an affection for it. Her husband, on the other hand, prefers cars, you know, and I, and I sort of you know, think to myself, well, how does somebody, cars, you know, you can, you can love a car only so far, can't you? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, he can't understand the dedication that she brings to her work as far as she's concerned. You know, the scale of her task, the environment, diversity, the animal population, these are huge. That's what she sees, and, and that's not what her husband Ray sees. He sees a wife who spends far too much time out in the countryside on her own tracking coyote when he would prefer her to be at home cooking Indian curries with him. Thank you so much for this. Could you read us a passage and set it up for us from I'd your book? I'd be delighted. Thank um, you. Attila is uh, a trauma specialist. He specializes in the trauma of civilians, not combatants. He goes as an emissary to various places conduct research, but sometimes he also acts in a negotiating capacity. So here he is in Bosnia. He has just finished negotiating with the leader of one of the militias who has told Attila that he will not have black African UN troops in a position of authority over his men. Attila was shown out by the aide, this time by a different exit, one that took him down a corridor and past a room thick with cigarette smoke and the sounds of a televised football match. Inside, the commander's men jeered the opposing team. There was no big secret to war, Attila thought. There would always be people who relished violence. All they ever needed was a leader and an opportunity. If someone could unite the gang members of New York or Chicago or London, they could take over their respective cities. If that person was the president, they could take over the country. A lot could be achieved by offering young men power and sex. In the filthy work of clearing up after other people's wars, listening to the survivors' accounts of what had been done to their sisters, mothers, brothers, fathers themselves, sometimes, like in this place, on his way to and from the camps, he passed the perpetrators at roadblocks. He wanted to stop and ask them questions. What did they dream about? What had war brought them? Nobody funded those kinds of conversations. Public sympathy was what defined who would be treated as the victims. Those who were done too. Those who saw what was done. Never the doers. That was the way the outside world assuaged the guilt for whatever failings had been laid at its door. Light was leaving the skies as Tiller waited for the land cruiser to be brought round. Beyond the lake of mud... Among the tattered bushes at the perimeter fence, not more than 30 yards away, Attila saw a movement. A moment later, there came the crack of gunfire, a shout and a laugh. An animal of some kind sprang forward and bolted the line of the fence until it disappeared through a hole in the wire. What was that? Attila asked the aide. Fox. Somebody used to give food before. Now comes here looking. <laughs> First one shoots it wins. Wins what? The aide shrugged. <laughs> wins bet. The next day, Attila was called to the satellite phone at Command HQ. It was Quell. Forget it, he told Attila. It's over. They've decided to meet the commander's terms. That's it? 
said Attila. That's it, replied Quell. Sorry to waste your time. In the evening, Attila met the Kenyan, who listened in silence with his elbows on the table and his chin resting on his steepled fingers. When Attila had finished, he merely nodded. My men don't want to be here. They're cold. They can't eat the food. I'll tell you the truth. I don't want to be here either. If this is what it has come to, we will not make an argument of it. We will return home. Attila leaned back in his chair. Neither man spoke until the Kenyan said, You see how the people here do not look at us. They will not meet your eye. He leaned forward and looked directly at Attila. But it is not because we are black. No, it is because they are ashamed that now we have seen what they are. Well, your book, Happiness, is out this month, so there's no pressure here. But besides your happiness tour, what are you working on anything right now? Now I'm working on a book of essays. I sometimes like to return to nonfiction after fiction, especially a book that's in a big book that's taken as long as this one has. I do tend to like to return to nonfiction. And one of the essays in the collection, some are already published and some are new. So there's a new one, for example, on urban wildlife. But one of the essays which had a big influence on happiness is set in Freetown. And it's about a man called Goodish Jallo, who's the only vet in Freetown, indeed, in Sierra Leone. He's certainly the only vet for domestic pets in Sierra Leone, and he is a dog lover extraordinaire, as am I. And it was a, the essay was a portrait of him, but in, specifically his efforts, successful in the end, to save all the street dogs of Sierra Leone, of Freetown, from extermination. So he's a charming man, and he saves all the street dogs because after the war, the authorities wanted to kill off the do- kill the dogs. And we've always had thousands of street dogs. We've always had them. So he went around. <laughs> he got a big truck, and he started grabbing the dogs and putting them in because they were going to give the order the next day to kill the dogs. So he started going around to save them. And first of all, people you know, challenged him and said, why are you taking our dogs away? Why are you taking our dogs away? And so he told them what was happening. So they all started grabbing the dogs and throwing them in the back of the truck. His wife said to me, I did a double interview. She said, oh, Aminata, that night we had 600 dogs. And that night it was a full moon. What I was thinking about when I was thinking about urban wildlife and people's responses to them, which is so conflicted, you know, here's a country that had come out of a civil war, you know, a couple of years before, and still people had the heart to save the street dogs. It's a lovely story, and so that's one of the connections, and, and there will be others, on, on other things, not just writing one on Obama, and, you know, there'll be various different essays, but those are two. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening to Africa, Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. What are you reading? Let us know. Write to us at storiesinthe55 at rfi.fr. That's storiesinthe55 with 55 is numbers at rfi.fr. Goodbye. Goodbye.